Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined via Skype by Aaron McLaren. Aaron is the lead audio programmer at Epic Games. He is currently working on a new multi-platform audio mixer backend for Unreal Engine 4 and developing new technology and approaches to game audio for VR. Today, Aaron talks about his unusual career progression, all things game audio and procedural audio. Hey Aaron, how are you today? Doing great. Fantastic. So you're calling in from Seattle and it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Yes, it's 11 in the morning, eight hours from uh, London. It's 7 p.m. for us. I'm on my second coffee. Second coffee. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm winding down and drinking water. I had enough coffees today. Be up all night. Uh, what's the weather like? It is actually uh, about to snow. It's probably snowing right now. In fact, I need to look at the weather because I live on a hill, and so I might need to uh, leave early if it's too snowy, which is a little bit nerve-wracking. Interesting. Not the kind of problem we tend to encounter on a regular basis in London, but it does snow every now and then, actually. Having said that, being from Latvia, which is a northern country, I miss snow during the winter sometimes. I grew up in Michigan, so I grew up around snow, but snow out here with the you know, steep hills is a totally different thing. I would like to talk to you about your educational background. So you studied physics and music. How did it all lead to gaming and gaming industry in general? That's a good question. Um, I actually didn't start out wanting to go into games. Um, a lot of young people I see are like, man, I really want to get into the game industry. I never really had that like ambition. When I was really young, my ambition was, I, I kind of had a lot of different interests and they were sort of unrelated. I was I would get deep into some topic, physics or science, and like get get way into it and then separately get really into music. Like I I was uh, I grew up playing a lot of uh, uh, trumpet, studied jazz and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, in college I kind of just took classes in both of those areas independently. And then I realized I needed to like get real on something. So I ended up actually for a while, deciding to do a double major. I was a double physics and music major because um, I was taking all the music classes and all the physics classes. And uh, up until my senior year, I actually was both and uh, in college. And I had decided I was going to go to graduate school for physics. So I decided to double down on a couple extra more classes. So I ended up only getting a music minor because I was like, I don't need a music major. That's just silly. I'll just get a uh, you know, a stronger physics major. Um, and I still wasn't thinking about games or anything like that. But um, when I was in graduate school uh, in physics, I went to University of Notre Dame for graduate school. And uh, there I actually had a friend that uh, was a fellow uh, physics PhD student. He was studying um, general relativity, if I recall. And uh, for fun, we would, we would be making just like fun music and weird music. And he, he showed me a programming language called C-Sound. 
Um, this was probably around the year 2002. Um, and C sound was, it's, it's a really interesting scripting language. Um, and I got a book on it and I got really into it and it was a whole world of, uh, music and stuff that I had, I was totally unaware of. And so I was able to combine my like sort of technical and math stuff with my music and, you know, background and knowledge of music theory and composition and jazz and all that kind of stuff in a weird kind of like middle ground. And I got deep into that. So I probably spent most of my free time in graduate school in physics thinking about computer music stuff rather than graduate school or rather than uh, physics stuff. So I decided to only to do a, a, a master's rather than a PhD. And uh, my life plan at that point was to go back to graduate school um, but after a break, um, I wanted to, uh, study computer music. I didn't even know that was a thing that one could do for my undergrad. And, uh, there's only a handful of schools at the time that, that had any kind of program like that. Um, this is before the huge, you know, wave of creative coders and all that stuff. So yeah, basically I just left graduate school in physics and I was like, I'm going to go into computer music. And that was my ambition. And, uh, I taught high school for a couple of years, which was kind of insane. I, I taught, uh, High school for three years after uh, uh, graduate school at Notre Dame. So I taught AP physics, uh, AP calculus, conceptual physics. Um, I learned programming, like real programming, to teach a, a high school class in programming. And uh, like I taught it to myself over the summer because I felt like the school should have a programming class. And I was like, I had a meeting with the headmaster, like, we got to be teaching these kids programming. And they're like, well, we don't have any budget for a programming teacher. Like, what are we going to do? can you teach it? And I was like, well, I don't know programming. All right, I'll learn it. I'll learn programming to teach it. So anyways, I learned programming to teach this class. Um, but anyways, I did that for three years in Sacramento, um, California. And while I was doing that, I was uh, continuing studying computer music stuff. I got really into uh, Maximus P, PD, Super Collider, and all this stuff. And uh, uh, I took a, a couple summer workshops at uh, UC Berkeley. There's this program called uh, SINMET. It's the uh, Center for New Music and Audio Technologies over at Berkeley, and they do these like Maximus P summer workshops. So I took a couple of those. So yeah, I spent uh, one uh, summer just learning Java because that's what it was an AP programming class, and uh, basically taught a course to some eager kids about Java programming. It was cool. But anyways, while I was doing that, I was uh, studying this computer music stuff on the side. Took a summer workshop. One of the nice things about being a, a teacher is you get summers off. So I had like a whole summer to like you know, do cool art projects and learn new things. Um, uh, and also work side jobs because I was, I was not making a lot of money. So I was very active. Um, but anyways, I uh, took this summer workshop at UC Berkeley because I was, again, teaching in Sacramento. So Berkeley is not that far away in uh, Cal Berkeley, California. And uh, the workshop was on Max MSP. And at this workshop, I met some people from uh, Max's who were just taking the class to for some of their sound designers are taking it so that they could learn max um, because uh, they were at the time working on spore and spore was still under development and there hadn't been a ton of stuff publicly said about it, but I had heard that they were doing some uh, generative music with uh, Brian Eno at the time. So I, I was knowledgeable about it and um, kind of just over lunch um, during this workshop kind of became friends with, with a couple of the sound designers um, at Max's. One of them uh, is still a really good friend of mine. That's uh, and Andy Lackey, who is really like world-class sound designer. He runs a sound design group called Wabi Sabi and has won tons of audio awards and stuff now. But at the time, it was just like, you know, hanging out and getting to know him, becoming friends with some people at a, at a randomly at a workshop. And at the end of that workshop, uh, one of them said, hey, why don't you come by the Max's office and just check things out, see what's, see what's going on? 
you know, if you're curious how games are made, you know, and I was like, oh yeah, sure, why not? I'm interested in games. Like, I grew up. I'm a. I'm a. You know, I was born in 1980. I grew up playing video games, and so I. And again, having the summers off, totally had the time to come out and spend a day at the uh, Maxis office, and I met everybody uh, in this in the studio uh, that was doing audio, and in particular, I, I uh, met the uh, audio director Kent Jolly, who was working at Maxis. Uh, he's the audio director at Maxis at the time. And uh, we like kind of just basically hit it off really well. We had a great conversation. It was very collegial, no pressure. I didn't ever think I was going to work there or anything. I had no ambition to work there, um, and they weren't going to hire me. It was literally just like hanging out and having a good chat with some people with common interests and brainstorming cool ideas and stuff. It's pretty much how it went. For me, it was like also like a Mr. Rogers like visit the factory and see how like scarves are made or something. I was like, oh, this is so cool. So anyways, I went back to work and... Um, that year, I was applying to um, a bunch of different graduate schools. This was like going to be the big year. I had been teaching for a couple of years, and I felt the pull of time, you know, like, and I wanted to not be the guy that had ambitions and, you know, look back 20 years later and never having actually done anything and still doing the your your temporary job that you're only going to do for a couple of years, you know. So I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to apply to graduate school. So I put together a really cool portfolio. I had a lot of weird procedural music stuff. I, I wrote this enormous Max patch. And before I sent it off, I think maybe a month before it was the applications were due, I sent it to Kent Jolly because we were talking about procedural music and he was doing some cool stuff. So I thought I'd get his feedback for my application. Um, say, hey, here's this thing I did. What do you think of it? Um, if you have any feedback, it'd be great to, to incorporate it so I have a better chance of getting into into some of these really competitive uh, graduate programs. And uh, he replied with some great advice um, and said, hey, why don't you come work for us? <laughs> um, you know, just for a contractor while you're waiting, you know, uh, for to hear back from graduate school, just come and work for us. And so that's basically how I got my first game job. And uh, I didn't even apply. I didn't even think about it. It was just like an invitation. And uh, I, it, I did it. Um, and it was a huge pain in the ass to, or I don't know if I can swear, but pain in the ass to uh, change halfway through the year uh, for the high school to find a new teacher and stuff. And I felt kind of bad doing it, but I figured if I didn't do it, then I'd never do something like that. Yeah. Working at Spore was um, a dream job for me then in the, and still is in a lot of ways. And the reason is, is that I didn't have any pressure or expectations about, you know, what I should do. There was no requirement. I basically just, you know, just had fun. It was, it was a blast. I basically, would come into work and work on writing procedural music all day in, in PD for like, I think nine months. I just did that. And it was a, a total blast. And so anyways, that was my first game, game job. And uh, Kent was very gracious to uh, ask if I would like to co-present the procedural music stuff that we did on Spore and GDC. And that was 2008. And that kind of like sort of introduced me to the game industry at large. I got a lot of interest. I even got to, um, go and consult with Blizzard um, way back then. I think this is like when they were working on a, a early version of uh, their card game. It was really cool. Like they were considering doing procedural music stuff. One of the things uh, that connected from that experience, because Maxis is from EA, um, was uh, Don Vecca. Don Vecca is, has a fascinating background. He is, if you don't, if you don't know who that is, he's the, uh, he was at the time the audio director or one of the audio directors at EA Redwood Shores and worked on a lot of great uh, sounding games like uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, uh, Dead Space, Dead Space uh, 1 and uh, part of 2. And um, 
so he his background is music and programming as well so we got along really well a couple times when we met when i was working at max's and uh basically um i did oh the, the story too is after after us Maxis, I actually did get to graduate school. I went to uh, UC Santa Barbara and uh, worked with uh, Curtis Rhodes, and I got a master's there. Um, but while I was doing that, one of the reasons I only got a master's is I then got like, you know, attracted back to the game industry because I was originally going to get a PhD in computer music, but I had so much fun on Spore, and uh, Don was like, you know, we're working on Dead Space. You play that game, and of course I played it, and it sounds awesome. He's like, we we need a, somebody who can you know, do sound design and music and scripting and all that stuff. And we liked what you did on sports. So I ended up working. I was like, okay, I got, can't pass up that opportunity. So I got sucked back into the game industry. And so that's how I got back into dead space too. And I, I was just a technical sound designer. Um, interestingly enough, actually I was hired um, at, on dead space Two to be a, uh, uh, just like an audio artist is what they call it. Yeah. And uh, I was doing so much scripting and that kind of stuff at the time that HR actually met with me and said like, Hey, you're not doing your job description, but you're doing something clearly valuable. Like we need to track this better. <laughs> like, so they said, can you write what you're doing? And that's going to be a job description. So I wrote down what I was doing on dead space. Um, and I said like, what kind of my background is and that kind of stuff. And they said, okay, what do you want to call this position? I said, technical sound design. We have technical artists. There should be a technical sound designer. And I'm sure that I didn't coin the, t- the term or anything like that. I'm not going to claim that, but I do, like at certainly at EA, they didn't have a technical sound designer. And so uh, they actually put together that job description. I was, and I was going to have that title. Um, but then I left uh, Dead Space 2 to like go to work at Sledgehammer Games. And that's how I jumped from sound design to programming. Um, and uh, so that was a little weird thing. But, uh, <clears throat> and I should say the reason why I jumped, made that jump, this, sorry, this is so long winded, but it's, it's a weird, circuitous way of my background here so as a sound designer don actually i was working really close with him on dead space 2 he quit one day it was it was actually shocking because you know you're one of your best friends your boss and somebody you admire just like hey i'm quitting <laughs> like out of nowhere and he was quitting uh dead space 2 to go and he's the audio director this like lion in the game industry uh to go work at sledgehammer and i was like oh that sucks and so he left but maybe a couple weeks before he quit he, he said to me he goes Hey man, um, uh, you ever think about being an audio programmer? So this is Don a couple weeks before he quit, maybe a couple months. I don't know. So before he quit relatively soon, he, he, he's like pulls me aside probably mid conversation about some system or something we were working on. And he says to me, you know what? Like you should, you should think about being an audio programmer. Like, I think you'd be a really good audio programmer. And I was like, no, no, never. I'm not going to be a programmer. No, I'm an, I'm an artist. I just want to make some cool sound design stuff. I don't I don't want to deal with the stress of being a programmer. He's like, no, 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 you should think about it. And then a couple weeks later, he quits and uh, goes to Sledgehammer. And sure enough, uh, audio programmer Rec opens up <laughs> and Don's like, hey, you should look at this. You should check this out. Uh, and so I, that's how basically that's how I became a programmer. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do that. So I made the jump and uh, I haven't looked back since. I actually really enjoy uh, audio programming quite a bit. It's uh, it's got a lot of challenges. One of the things that I found frustrating about being a sound designer on Dead Space um, and even on at Maxis was uh, I have very strong opinions about aesthetics, extremely strong opinions. And when you're not a director, you don't have a lot of uh, power <laughs> or say. And even when you are a director, there's other like creative directors and people a- a- above you who have strong opinions. And there's a lot of negotiation. It's 
it's very different than just being an artist out in the world, you know, making your art and like not caring about what anybody thinks of it. Right. But for a game in a big team and a collaboration and lots of other considerations get really frustrating when you have something, you know, is like, or at least that you believe is, you know, awesome. And then, you know, have somebody go like, eh, eh, it needs to have more, you know, of a different kind of sound, you know, and you know, Vegas. It was frustrating for me. Uh, so I really actually like being a programmer because it's kind of cut and dry. Does it work? Does it, does it not work? You know, is the problem solved? Is it not solved? Here's a cool system. And then, then I can use those tools for fun's purposes on the side, maybe. <laughs> so yeah, anyways, that's how I became a programmer in games. It's I never intended to be in games, but it just happens to be the best place to do the kind of things I want to do and uh, actually make a living doing it. So That's really interesting. You definitely had loads of twists and turns in your early career, which led you to the path that you did not anticipate. In hindsight, you can tell that ev everything you did in the past somehow contributed to the bigger picture in the future. Could you share your experience at Sledgehammer Games and your involvement with Modern Warfare 3 and Call of Duty Advanced Warfare? Working at uh, Sledgehammer in the early days, so I was probably, I joined maybe six months after it was founded. Like when I joined uh, Dead Space 2 was like, I think literally the day after or maybe two or three days after Glenn and Condry left this, and, and it had just been rebranded to Visceral. So before it was EA Redwood Shores, and then they rebranded to Visceral. So I'm like, my first couple of days was like, what is going on? It was like total chaos. So everyone's like, oh my God, Glenn and Condry left. And I was like, who's Glenn and Condry? Um, and so <laughs> when, when I first joined Sledgehammer, we were working, um, it, was, it was a new studio. I joined maybe seven or eight months after they started. And uh, there was only, I think I was maybe the sixth programmer hired, maybe the seventh programmer, something like that. And the audio team was just Don Becca and Travis Nace. And Travis Nace was formerly like audio QA at uh, uh, Visceral. Um, and so it was very small. And what we were working on at Sledgehammer in the early days, this is something that maybe not a lot of people know. I think it's public, I'm pretty sure, that they've talked about it. It was an was a, uh, internal game that, that eventually got canceled. Um, and it was going to be a game built in CryEngine. It was going to be a third-person game, uh, very different than Modern Warfare 3. So anyways, that's what we worked on for the first year of Sledgehammer. So I was on that probably for about four, five months, and we did a internal green lights, and, there, and it, was, it was an interesting-sounding game. And at that time, IW was imploding. I think it had been imploding for about a year, and uh, Activision basically realized that they needed some help for MW3, and... Uh, Sledgehammer got asked if we would like to do it um, or help, help IW ship MW3. And it was a really interesting time because we were like, oh, we got this game that we really believe in. It's awesome. Um, we have, you know, think it could be a really cool new direction for things or help out on this like established franchise, learn the way IW does Call of Duty and that kind of thing. So I think uh, the studio decided we, there was a period where we all kind of like had an open forum and talked about it, but I think pretty much the idea was that we're just going to jump on MW3. So I think we joined, I think, a year and a half from launch. So it's pretty much just crunch for a year and a half. And it was an insane process. Switching from the CryEngine toolset and also EA's toolset at uh, Visceral was uh, very, uh, I would say more, at the time, more modern. like So circa 2009 to 2010 modern. Um, so just a better toolset. Like the idea of playing editor was like when we first saw it in CryEngine, we were like, oh my God, that's that's amazing. Like I can make a change and then see it in the game without having to go through this long process. Like 
like that kind of a thing. Uh, but the IW engine was way back, like more old school, like uh, I'd say circa 2003, 2002 development process for, for artists. And so all of our artists, all of our designers, all of our designers had to learn how to program basically, how to script, because they had been all used to using sort of more visual-oriented tools um, and things that were like, you know, so our lead designers had no idea how to program. And yet in the IW, like Call of Duty engine, you have to know how to program if you're a designer because um, they use this scripting language called GameScript. And so it was a huge cultural shift in the company. Working at Sledgehammer, we we got put on the MW3 late in the cycle, had to learn a whole new way of doing things. We basically jumped into IW's workflow. We had to learn IW's tech, um, uh, their process for doing things, which is very different from what everybody in the studio is used to. Um, and I would say that uh, IW, we in the beginning, there were some growing pains. A lot of the initial growing pains were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe IW does things like this. But ultimately, I think the lesson is that uh, for me and I think a lot of other people was that uh, there is a a lot of good um, that can come out of uh, simplicity and bare bones and cutting cutting down on features. Um, as long as you have a team that's willing to like maybe forego quality of life for the end product, like there wasn't a huge number of like really awesome tool sets that you know designers and artists used, but there there are people at IW, their artists and d- designers and stuff didn't care or you know worry about it, and they just were focused on you know, making the product as good as possible um, and limiting what their engineering resources work on. And I think it's maybe there's different extremes to that, but there's a lesson to be learned in that sometimes a simpler uh, workflow and approach is better than more complicated ones. So specifically, for example, uh, IW and the Call of Duty pipeline circa 2009, 2010 was still based off of CSV files. So almost all the content was done through uh, CSV file entry. Um, all of the content was for designers was hand scripted by designers. There wasn't a lot of like visual tools like blueprints or, or any of the other fancier tools. All of the code was, uh, if you're a programmer listening, was C. It was basically just C programming. There was no C++. That means no objects, no inheritance. Um, so you had to re- really think deeply about your design and what you really needed. Did you Do you really need to make a you know, architecture for your feature that, you know, go to the moon type of thing. Um, And also there was no dynamic memory allocation in the engine. So everything had to be statically allocated. And if there was any dynamic allocation, it would have to become, have to come from a specific part of the memory called the hunk. This is all like, this is all well-known stuff from the Quake engine days, but IW hadn't like totally, you know, revolutionized much of it. So it was a huge learning process to learn how IW worked. And basically, Advanced Warfare is the IW engine with a whole bunch of sledgehammer features added. So there, we did actually make a whole bunch of really cool tools for designers that worked alongside that. But for MW3, we didn't have that. So it was a, it was a huge learning experience. And as a first programming gig, talk about intensity. Like, you know, hey, I'm a... <laughs> I'm going to try to be a programmer from a sound designer. Oh, and now you're working on Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. Uh, okay. <laughs> so it was really intense, huge learning experience. I And the, the programming team at Sledgehammer was very small when I was there. So I got a lot of mentoring from other like genius programmers. So I learned quite a bit really quickly um, from, from that experience. And it was pretty phenomenal. And of course, the Sledgehammer audio team, 
I personally think is one of the best in the business, uh, if not the best in the business. That's uh, Don Vecco was the audio director who I worked with at uh, uh, Visceral, but also Dave Swenson, who was a sound designer over at Visceral. He worked on De- Dead Space 1 and um, Dead Space 2 and Dante's Inferno and a bunch of other games. When we brought Dave Swenson over from Visceral, it was a transformation of the audio team there. I, I absolutely love Swenson. He is the uh, audio director at Sledgehammer now in World War II. I had no expectation that it would sound any anything less than amazing, and it sounds amazing. So that that team is a phenomenal audio team. So as an audio programmer, your first gig is NMW3 and with the Sledgehammer audio team, you can't ask for a better situation to learn from. You know, like it was it was an intense experience. Yeah, I can imagine it must have been a pretty steep learning curve for you, but nevertheless, very valuable experience. Yeah, it was great. Uh, it was it was a very very awesome and fun time for sure. So fast forward to 2018, and now you are at Epic Games. Working at Epic was was interesting. I uh, just to tell the story of how that gig happened. Basically, uh, UE4 came out. Um, I guess three and a half years ago now. At the time, I was actually working on a little side project in Unity and got beaten to the punch um, in terms of the Unity store, and so I was like. Um, I think there's a couple other audio engines that came out before mine and I was like, oh no, okay, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that, but in UE4. So I downloaded UE4, start learning how the UE4 audio engine works. I'm like maybe a week or two into a project to write a plugin for UE4, which is a whole new audio engine for UE4. And I get uh, just like sort of weird happenstance on LinkedIn about like 10 different notifications that people from Epic were checking out my account. Uh, and I was like, that's weird. And coincidental, and I get a, a message from a recruiter like, "Hey, we're interested in uh, hiring an audio programmer to maybe rewrite our audio engine." I was like, "Well, funny you should say that." <laughs> uh, and so I basically, rather than doing it on my own, I was just like, "Might as well get Epic to pay for me to rewrite their audio engine." And so that's how I how I uh, uh, basically got the gig about three years ago now. And uh, so I was uh, Epic's first dedicated audio programmer. They had never hired an audio programmer in its entire history. So the interview process was interesting. It was basically like, you know, really brilliant programmers who don't really know much about audio asking how audio works. And I'm like, literally teaching Epic's like lead programmers, how audio engines are structured, how one would write a render audio renderer, you know, whiteboarding it all out, them asking questions and great questions. It was a really, really fun interview process. And so that's how that that was what my mandate was when I got hired at Epic was hey we need to get a hold of our audio we need to actually build a good solution for people, and so that's my responsibility. Uh, and uh, I, I was the only audio program at Epic for the, for a year and a half, and uh, a year ago uh, hired another audio programmer a little bit less than a year ago, uh, Ethan Geller who's been awesome. So there's two of us here at Epic, and uh, and I'm his his lead, so I'm the lead audio programmer now. And so my responsibility is. Basically maintaining the uh, UE4 audio engine, um, the existing features, uh, doing direct support to licensees, and uh, supporting all of our internal games. At one point, uh, I counted six games that we were working on. Now we're, I think, down to, uh, so Robo Recall shipped and Paragon shut down, so that's two games down. So I think we only got about four games going on right now in development. Um, So it's pretty intense um, at Epic. Every day it's you know, hundred million different things flying around while on top of trying to, you know, push a totally new uh, audio renderer out in the world and uh, trying to do exciting new things that push the state of game audio forward. 
How did you decide what changes needed to be made and what was the protocol of deciding the boundaries of the new processes, standards, etc.? Could you talk about that process from planning to execution point? When I, um, I think I mentioned this at GDC last year, uh, when I first started on the process, I had this like ambition to just redo everything because um, that's what I was going to do originally on my own as a plugin. I was just going to like just make make my own UE4 sort of based audio engine. The problem with that is that there's tons of existing projects and licensees and lots of history, lots of built up knowledge about how UE4 works. And I was naive about a lot of other UE4 systems about how like things deeply work. Um, in terms of just UE4 in general, not just specific to audio. And, and when I first started, there was a whole bunch of need for just like le- what I would call leaf features. So I, I worked probably for the first six months or so, only a little bit working on new audio engine stuff, but a lot of time on uh, doing some much needed features uh, u- using the existing audio engine stuff. And from that experience, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a ton of code. I just did a ton of work to make this other the older system a lot more usable. I think I, I felt like I got it up to the point where I would call it uh, 2010 um, audio game audio technology era, like in terms of like you know with the feature set capabilities, which is what we shipped with MW3 and maybe mostly of Advanced Warfare. I think Advanced Warfare for Call of Duty shipped with a couple extra features that the base UE4 engine doesn't have. Um, but I felt like you could ship a really good audio uh, a game with really good audio with that feature set. Um, and, and evidently, by the way, the, uh, uh, this year of 2018, um, a couple games are up for awards, uh, in the game audio network guild. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the awards are, but like best audio, I think is, uh, uh, Hellblade and Hellblade uses the native audio engine, uh, with that feature set that I just described. So roughly after GDC 2016, I was like, okay, within, by GDC 2018 or 2017, I want to be able to announce the new audio engine. So basically between GDC 16 and 17 was uh, like crunch time to completely redo the audio render. Um, and so what what that was, uh, so having the experience now of actually doing the more leafy features and supporting Paragon and Fortnite development, most of the features I did were for those games. Uh, I had a very clear idea of where the boundary should be between the new audio engine and the old audio engine. And uh, uh, without getting the technical details, basically just if you if you're familiar with like in the olden days, <laughs> there was FMOD X uh, or FMOD Low Level and FMOD Designer, and those were like two separate license licensable things you could get from FMOD. So the best way to characterize what the what I did was essentially like an FMOD X type of thing, like an FMOD Low Level, without changing is like if if you kept Designer and all the t- the features that Designer has, or FMOD Studio now, but then just swapped out how the the rendering works. That's basically what I did for. UE4. Another analogy is like, this is why I described to graphics people. It's like I wrote an OpenGL sort of, so you have your graphics feature set, all the things that your graphics engine does. But then for each platform, you might have OpenGL or DirectX or some other kind of like low level thing that does the actual rendering, um, the actual math. So that's that's what the audio mixer is in UE4. And But what's cool though is that there's a whole bunch of features now that are possible because of the audio mixer that didn't have any representation in the old audio engine UE4. And those are all the new exciting stuff I, I presented last year at GDC at, uh, during at 2017. And that's like the real-time synthesis, that's the DSP graphs, the effects, the submix effects, better support for third-party plugins. All those kinds of things are 
totally orthogonal features and have no representation in the old audio engine. So that's where I got was able to go to town on, on new stuff while still having to maintain all of the old features. Like so the way sound cues work in UV4 or how attenuation works and all that stuff had to work perfectly in the new audio mixer so that you could have a game, for example, that you've been working on for, say, a year or a couple of years and then just flip the switch on the, the new audio engine and have it roughly sound uh, not too different. It will sound different, but not too different. So you don't have to do a whole pass on reauthoring a bunch of content and stuff like that. You can just, hey, let's use the audio engine. And that's actually what we're doing right now with Fortnite. We're in the process of shipping um, Fortnite with the new audio engine enabled. We would have done it earlier, but I had a kid in November and we didn't want to do it while it was on paternity. And then uh, Fortnite Battle Royale like started exploding. So we're like, okay, let's not rock the boat and ship a new audio engine while Fortnite Battle Royale is this huge thing. So, so it's kind of been delayed a bit, but it's been ready to flip on for Fortnite probably since October of last year. And so that means that we finally got all of the different backends supported with the new audio renters. So like PS4, Xbox One, Android, iOS, all that kind of stuff. So anyways, it's a lot of work, um, but I think it's close to being turned on uh, finally um, by default for UE4 users. There are already games shipping and having shipped with the audio, uh, new audio engine. Um, things just off the top of my head is a new game called All Walls Must Fall, um, which is really exciting. They, they use the new audio engine. Um, and another game that's coming out on PS4, A Way Out, they're using the new audio mixer. So it's a couple couple good games, um, and uh, it's very exciting to like have a be able to work on something that's used by lots of different people. It's really exciting. I'm curious to hear your opinion about where do you think immersive audio is currently heading alongside with procedural audio, and what kind of picture we can anticipate in five to ten years, perhaps. I'm a little bit old school in the sense that I think game audio has always been about immersion. Um, I do think procedural audio is a new thing. Um, I think it was actually a really old thing. We were doing procedural audio in like the 80s and 90s, early 90s, um, and and has been forgotten and now is a new thing again. But I think immersion, and it's obviously a vague term um, with 100 million probably opinions about what that means. But for me, audio has all always been in games about immersion, getting the player to feel like they're part of the world or communicating whatever the designer's intention of the game are. And I think that's true for any kind of like experience of audio. Like you go to an orchestra, you want to be immersed in the world of sound that that orchestra is about. So that's the power of the ears is that they you know don't turn off, and it's the fastest path to your emotion. It's like this reptilian response to things and so audio music sound voice and you know just walking around in nature uh i think your ears are the fastest path towards feeling immersed so i don't think that's a new thing and i think it's been co-opted a lot by what i would consider to be in in the world of vr kind of like a marketing thing to try to get funding and promote things so it's maybe a little bit negative view on it but i i I sometimes roll my eyes when i see something like now game audio is important you know now it really matters if it's immersive. And it's like, no, it's always mattered. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? It's nothing new. However, <laughs> however, that said, you know, having your, you know, I, I think the biggest power of VR more than anything is uh, cutting down your field of view so that you have less shit going into your eyes, which gives more bandwidth to your ears. So like, 
uh, when I review audio, it's kind of weird. Uh, like I, I work with uh, Dan Reynolds here at listen to some of the content he's making. And I'm like, I got to review this and give some feedback. I turn off the lights in his room and I close my eyes. <laughs> or if I have to look at something, I make sure it's just the thing that I'm looking at. Because I find like peripheral vision, just seeing things on the edge of my eyes takes up too much bandwidth in my head for me to be able to focus on stuff. So I, I strongly feel like the visual input distracts your brain from properly analyzing sounds. And I think VR, it's like that. Like in a weird way, by putting on this HMD, you're cutting off the world around you and people are subconsciously, whether they realize it or not, all of a sudden paying attention to the sounds that were always, always there, you know, all, Audio has always been important in games, right? But now they're like, oh, I'm, I'm hearing things now because I don't have a choice. It's either the thing in front of me and the things that I hear, and that's it. Like, you don't even have your cell phone. You don't have YouTube playing in the background, you know, cars driving by on the street. Near. So in, in other words, in VR, it, there is opportunities for things that before people weren't paying attention to. I think HRTF, spatialization and that kind of thing, is extremely beneficial in HMD, but almost uh, in VR, almost because you're guaranteed that the person is going to be wearing headphones more than anything and getting head tracking. Because if you had headphones for video games, you knew that the end user is going to have headphones and that they're going to have head tracking and like guaranteed for that. You'd spend a lot of time, you know, doing the same exact things that VR is doing without the HMD still. You get what I'm saying? Like the in VR, you know that the user, because it's a VR game, is going to be wearing HMD. Because of that, you can do a lot of things that you could do without that, but you wouldn't want to spend your time on it because you, maybe they're going to be sitting in a surround sound situation or stereo speakers or some shit, you know. So, anyways, uh, spatialization technology is really important um, in VR. But I think you your question about procedural audio is extremely relevant for, again, not necessarily for VR and immersion, but just for game audio in the future. I think the future of game audio is procedural content. That's um, either physical modeling, real-time synthesis, or some variation of it, or some real-time modulation of samples. Um, uh, so the kind of things that that you would do in your DAW, all the exciting sort of plugins, all that stuff, all of that's going to become runtime. I think game audio engines are going to become more and more and more complicated more difficult for people to learn just like you know to to become a artist for graphics like you know you want to be an environment artist or texture artist or particle uh, vfx artist or some other kind of like graphics artist for games is an extremely complex technical endeavor you're gonna have to learn about a lot of stuff a lot of math how shaders work all that kind of stuff and you might need to specialize in one of those things so in art you have for games you have like eight different sub-disciplines and someone can just focus on making really cool like water art you know or i'm a really good atmospheric environment you know environment artist or i'm really good at building models i'm really good at you know building really cool vfx and i'm a really good lighter i, I understand lighting so all of those specialized disciplines you then you go to look at the equivalent in games for audio and it's like three to six maybe eight you might have a vo specialist you might have a music guy or a person that is, um, you know, specializing in music or ambience. And then you might have somebody who's really good at guns. Largely speaking, there isn't that kind of specialization. And I think in the future, it's going to have to get that way because the tech is just going to get more and more complicated. You're going to have to, <laughs> there's going to be more and more audio programmers that are going to be needed. The reason why I bring that up as an issue is that procedural audio, like 
the the thing I, I sort of implicitly understood but didn't explicitly say is that when we go into the future of game audio where procedural audio becomes a thing, I think it actually become more technically challenging to implement. In some ways, it'll be easier. Push a button, but that's not really how it's going to work, right? It's going to be 20 parameters on a thing. You'll, you know, have to figure out a way to how to map those parameters to a game. Um, you know, you'll have to understand physics and how f- acoustics works um, in some fundamental way. Um, and this is, of course, assuming you want to, like, you know, be the best of the best. Like, so what does it take to make award-winning game audio is the sort of assumption here. And I think it'll take specialization in different disciplines within audio. There'll be somebody who is specialized in how synthesis works. Synthesis is really complicated. Like, I, I write synthesizers, and I love synthesis, but working with Dan uh, Reynolds here, he is a true expert on just synthesis sound design. Understanding how to manipulate synthesizers to do really cool sounds is a deep field. Like, not every sound designer is going to be able to do that. And I think that's a specialization. And similar with, like, building really awesome procedural ambiences, uh, understanding how environments work and, you know, ambisonics audio spatialization and how that would work along with uh, object-based spatializers and uh, where to go to get field recordings of ambiences, you know, um, things like that. I think that's a specialization. You know, guns, guns are a specialization. Like, you know, like I said, you might, like in Call of Duty, I bring that up because we had some, uh, Travis, for example, is really an expert on Travis uh, Nace. He was a uh, sound designer uh, on uh, Call of Duty at Sledgehammer. And he's just, he owns guns and he deeply understands gun sound design. And that's like a sound design specialty. I think you're going to need that kind of thing more and more to make award-winning game audio with increasingly powerful and complex tools. And that's actually my my goal in, in uh, UE4 is to be able to build the, the framework for that kind of future to become a thing. Everything I do, I want it to be plug-inable so that, you know, researchers out in the world, academic or other companies, some other game trying to do a game in UE4, they have some idea of a really cool technique for procedural audio or something, some something that they want to do that no one's ever done before. I want to make that as easy as possible to do in the context of the UE4 audio engine so that they don't have to reinvent everything if they want to try something. They can just focus on a handful of you know experimental features and make that workflow really easy for an audio programmer or uh, audio team to try and experiment with that kind of direction, procedural audio. So yeah, I think it's important. I think it's a sort of independent of immersion in VR. I think that said, although it's independent, Obviously, if you are in an environment where it's more immersive and you're interacting with things in an environment where you, you're wearing HMD or, like I said, psychologically more focused on what's happening in front of you and that, you know, it's more present, I think procedural audio can play a big, a, a big role. But like I said, it's just as important in non, non-VR games. Can we talk about your involvement with Steam Audio? So uh, Steam Audio is uh, uh, Valve's plugin for physics-based audio, um, specifically around spatialization, um, occlusion and propagation, and reverb. And um, so they they approached us. Uh, and by the way, if you don't know, their Steam Audio is actually made by Impulsonics. Impulsonics was bought by Valve, and um, I had had a relationship with Impulsonics before Valve bought them um, through you know various conferences and stuff like that, so I was familiar with the team working on that. And after they got bought by Valve, they approached us and said, "Hey, so Valve is making Steam Audio free, uh, no strings attached. Um, we're looking for partners to like sort of release this plugin. Is UE4 ready for something like that?" And I said, "Not only is it ready, I'm looking for exactly this type of thing." 
um, because we, you know, it hasn't been fully announced yet. No one's using it yet, but I want to have like a real, real world use case of a really complex plugin that I want to make sure it gets integrated properly in the, in my new audio render. And so they came on line with us before GDC last year at the, at the perfect time. Um, so I was basically ready to start, you know, figuring out how to support plugins. And I wanted to support, uh, plugins differently than I, than I'd seen it worked on, uh, uh, supported on, uh, uh, other audio engines, primarily because there's certain types of audio features that I think don't work very well in the traditional plugin format, like like DAW style. Like so, DAW has channel effects, and then you have submix effects or effects that you send audio to, right? And I have that in the audio mixer. There is that analogy. You have what I call source effects, which are basically channel effects in your DAW, and then you have submix effects, which can be a graph because submixes can send audio to other submixes, right? But these features are really like weird they don't really fit in that model very well like how propagation works in a game engine how reverb you can think of as a submix and in fact that's always how it's been thought of in a game but i'm I'm thinking like actually there could be something more fundamental about reverb in a game engine and then same with uh with uh, spatialization like spatialization in a game engine is analogous to your panner on a channel strip right you go like it's like an automate you could think of game engines and spatialization as an automated panner but the thing is is that for a game engine, it's a little bit more deeper than that, and it should be a little bit more deeper than that. And so I wanted to think more deeply about how spatialization will work as a plugin. And so with that in mind, I created a separate sort of plugin interface for these core, what I call core, core audio engine extensions. And um, basically worked with Steam Audio to get that working. And so Steam Audio uses all of, there's three core extensions, um, and they use all of them. And um, we even worked out some interesting ways for, uh, source-based audio for spatialization to get per source audio, but then output um, on the reverb submix. And that's how the uh, IR reverb works in Steam Audio. So in other words, rather than processing each source, doing a impulse response convolution per source, it, it does uh, processing per source, but then does just one big uh, IFFT on all of the audio in one big go, and then outputs that on the reverb submix. So it's kind of a weird there's literally no analogy in DAW land for anything that that does. It's like very different way of thinking about audio signal flow. And it's something that was kind of fun to kind of come up with something that I felt hadn't been done properly in, in other audio engines. So with that, though, because it's uh, Steam Audio is just a plugin, we have other plugins that are kind of coming in in the footsteps of that. So Oculus, their audio team revisited their plugin. So we're actually in 419 launching with, I think, a totally new Oculus plugin implementation where they've also used all three of those interfaces doing something similar. And then uh, I think last version is when we launched uh, Google Resonance. Google Resonance is a really exciting solution for this sort of thing because uh, they have a sort of fixed cost thing. Their, their goal was to be able to uh, ship this sort of physics-based, you know, advanced spatialization and reverb stuff on mobile as much as they can so that you know, the more sources you have, the more it doesn't get more expensive, that kind of thing. So anyways, to wrap it back on Steam Audio, work, my collaboration with Steam Audio is basically figuring out how to get their stuff integrated as best as possible inside uh, UV4. And uh, our office is actually right now in the same building as Valve. Like we're underneath a couple floors below Valve in the same actual building in Bellevue. So it's actually kind of fun to meet with their audio programmers working on Steam Audio. They're like, come down and we'll have lunch and we'll go over code and and stuff like that. It's pretty fun. Steam audio is really complicated how it works. So it's probably, it's too, a little bit too hard to talk about in a podcast, but um, I, I could, you know, I could actually probably briefly describe something I think is kind of neat about how Steam audio works. Roughly, this is very briefly, it's more complicated than this, but basically define a, a grid of probes 
And then in an offline bake, it'll um, iterate through each of the probes, moving the listener, like a virtual listener position across the probes. And then for each of those positions, every other probe, it puts a source or, or you can have different source positions. And it analyzes what the uh, filter would be through a fluid simulation propagation. So from the source, they'll like do a fluid, like spherical uh, expansion and it'll do diffraction around corners and edges through windows and all the kind of things that you define in geometry and then from that fluid simulation it basically does a virtual impulse response of what the effect of that environment would be on the sound kind of like similar to how hrts work it's basically just how filters work where you go like here's input there's some abstract system or some interface that transforms that input signal, and then you get some output signal. And as long as that that intermediary system is linear, you can build a filter. And then from that filter, you can reproduce what that system's process was on that input signal. And so that's basically how SteamAudio works. So then at runtime, a source plays. It goes. It looks up into a big data set that's like, oh, this source is here, the listener's here. Pull that from this data set. Now I've got a filter. And then just basically apply that filter to the sound. And as you transition through the world, you know, you'll get that that really impressive feeling of like audio moving around corners and blending through doors and filtering in just that right kind of way when you hear it first for the first time properly set up in a virtual environment really blows your mind and then you go back to the real world and you start hearing those filter effects and you're like oh my god it's totally how it works you know so it's it steam audio in particular is very impressive as a as a uh, ambition for game audio yes it definitely sounds very neat which project that you've been involved with you're most proud of and perhaps why? What I'm working on at Epic now is obviously the, I think, the thing I'm most proud of. It's the thing I've had the most direct involvement from beginning to end in terms of the new audio engine. Um, and uh, working at Epic is pretty much the most am- amazing place for me to work in terms of what, I, what I'm interested in, um, what I'm capable of doing, and the impact that I would have on, on just the world, uh, game audio, but potentially outside of games. I think it's a fantastic opportunity here. I'm proud of that. What's in store in 2018 for you personally and perhaps uh, your involvement with Epic Games? So 2018, hopefully, um, I I don't want to make any promises, but we're imminently doing it. So hopefully nothing will happen to change this. But uh, uh, the new audio engine will be on um, by default and we'll be able to start the process of uh, deprecating the old way of doing things. And we'll be able to actually start making progress on some really exciting uh, ideas that we have for UE4, basically new new ways of thinking about sound cues, uh, new tools for profiling and analyzing audio at runtime, um, and uh, just making the workflow easier. Particularly excited about trying to find time to focus on tutorials and documentation and, and outreach and education. Because um, we, ha- we haven't, part of the reason why we haven't done a lot of that yet with the new audio engine is that it's been changing pretty quickly a lot. So you don't want to like spend a lot of effort doing a ton of documentation and tutorials and then two months later have it be completely invalidated. And so you kind of want to wait for things to solidify and you know be sure that this is how you want things to work in terms of the architecture and feature set. There's a couple of exciting stuff that we want to try to do in the next couple of weeks for GDC. We're going to try to crunch and do some stuff. I don't want to announce anything for that yet, but hopefully if this comes out maybe around GDC in 2018 that... Maybe there'll be some exciting stuff that is in my head right now that we'll have actually done by then. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff coming up. I think uh, I think in a couple of years, we'll be really making an impact in game audio. I think uh, it's just starting. I think, you know, 
people in in the game audio community are like, oh, what's going on over at Epic? Some interesting stuff. That's that's interesting. My interest is P. But I, hopefully that will translate in the next couple of years to a bunch of people, not just in games, but in academia and research. I'd like to see UE4 being used as a platform for audio research. And uh, I'd like to see it being used as a platform for art projects, installations, um, and things like that. How many of you working in the audio team uh, based in Seattle? Uh, it's just me and Ethan Geller as the audio programmers. And we're the only audio programmers at Epic. And then uh, Dan Reynolds is a technical sound designer. He's kind of like the engine technical sound designer. So he works closely with Ethan Ethan and I on like actually trying to use features right when we make them. And he's here so that you know we'll send new ideas and code over. Hey, Dan, check this out. Is this insane? Or... Or he'll try something out and be like, hey, man, this is this is horrible. So he's like our first line of defense for like representing, you know, we kind of consider him in a, high, a high-end uh, Uber user. So if Dan approves it and can figure it out, we think we got something cool. But yeah, there's only three of us. Uh, we have an open uh, requisite right now, requisition right now for uh, QA. So we'll have an audio QA position hopefully in a couple weeks. Um, which is, we don't have dedicated audio QA right now. It sucks not to have dedicated audio QA because, as you know, audio is a specialized thing. Um, some people can listen carefully, and some people, I don't think, have the talent for analyzing what they're hearing. And uh, so I think having QA very specialized in audio is extremely valuable and important. You must have met some incredible minds amongst people and companies you worked with. What piece of advice have you picked up on the way that you would give to someone who wants to enter the industry today? I got into the industry sort of accidentally. I wouldn't even say it accidentally, but just happened because I was doing things, um, making things, meeting people, and just being passionate about what, I, what I'm doing. And it just naturally happened. I didn't have to go out of my way. But in that process, though, I think part of the reason why that worked well for me is um, when I did meet somebody in the game industry, because I wasn't really trying to work in the game industry wasn't a dream of mine. I just acted myself, you know, just more of like a colleague, you know. I think when you meet somebody who's in the game industry and you're like, you admire what they do, don't like freak out or anything. You're just as your person too, you know. <laughs> like, you know, you have valid things to say. Ask If you have questions, you can ask it. But I, I would just say be cool, I think, is a, is a way to, to phrase it. Um, if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I think when you meet somebody... And it, there is a feeling of of like nervousness or like I want to get something out of you or something like that. I think it can kind of can create awkwardness that's hard to get over. It's just like unnatural. So just be relaxed. I'd say when you meet someone in a conference or at a table, just be cool. And, you know, that's the impression. Maybe you're not at the point in your career yet where it would be easy for you to get a gig. Just keep trying, like apply to things, get build up experience. If you if it's hard to get into somewhere, um, I, I find I have found that what can really work is if you're just working on cool projects and being involved in the community online. Like a couple of people have stood out to me that I thought like you know wow this person's doing some really cool stuff. So like a QA position to open up recently, and I specifically would contact some people that I saw doing really cool stuff out in the community with UE4, and I'd be like, hey man, like you seem to be really interested in UE4, your knowledge about audio. Would you be interested in this position? Like that's a, you know, that's huge, right? So that kind of thing can help. And uh, so it's it's hard to say. I don't think there's any one piece of advice anybody can give you on like this is going to work. I'd say just make things, be cool, meet people. <laughs> that's about the best I can I can say. Oftentimes, if you're cool, 
in a conversation with somebody and and they leave going like, oh, that guy was cool. Like, you know, I, I like them. Like that that's their thinking, you know, and something may come up in the future, like literally potentially years later, years later. And they'll go, oh, you know, I, I remember having that conversation with that Aaron guy. He seemed he seemed kind of cool. I'm going to ask him what, it, you know, if he, you know, is free or whatever, you know, kind of, you never know when an opportunity is going to come up and what conversation is going to trigger something from somebody, you know, years down. Like, in fact, I, I should say specifically, my gig at Epic is entirely probably a result of a conversation over beer with uh, Mike Moreski at Valve. So Mike Moreski is one of the top audio guys at Valve, right? I think uh, GDC 2008, no, it had to have been later, maybe 2010, something like that. Um, I just happened to run into Mike Moreski at a party, and uh, we were just chatting, having a good time. We got into a debate about some particular detail of game audio. I disagreed with him. Like, you know, you don't have to agree with people. And we had a really fun debate about something, and it was totally cordial and respectful and and it, it, we just had a good time. And uh, like years later, I get a call from him. He's like, hey, you know, you interested in applying to Valve? And I, I totally applied to Valve and I got rejected. I totally got rejected from Valve. <laughs> uh, not because of Mike Moreski. I just, at the time, programming wise, hadn't didn't have the experience level yet. And uh, this is probably like six years ago now. Um, but anyways, he's the one that recommended me to Epic. Epic found out about me from Mike Moreski. So Epic's like, because Mike Moraski's connected, and they're like, Epic's like, hey, do you know any good audio programmers? And Mike Moraski told Epic, like, hey, this is Aaron. He's awesome. We really liked him when we interviewed him. We, you know, we didn't, he wasn't good, for, you know, for us at that time, but it's probably good now. Like, you should ping him, and that's how the references happened. Literally, probably from argument over beer, you know, how how eight years ago, you know what I mean? <laughs> you never know when something's gonna happen. Just be cool, you know. That's a great piece of advice. Just stay cool. Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, man. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Aaron McLaren. This episode was produced by Gillian Duffy, Oliver Cadell and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Knobs Bergamo. Thanks for listening.